Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be there in a minute. Um, so we're picking back up this morning with our Watch Your Mouth series um, after taking a break for a week, and perhaps we needed that break. Um, good to take a break and be reminded last week from Larry uh, that we need to see God for who he is, uh, which will be something we'll be focusing on here at the end of this sermon as well. And I hope the one-week break wasn't a break from watching your mouth, uh, but an opportunity for putting into practice what Brandon has been preaching on. Um, in, in the first sermon, which was really the introduction to this series, um, the reminder was that the scriptures point out the tongue is a powerful thing, um, and it's not tamed by man. Uh, it's small but powerful. Uh, and we're remind, reminded uh, that we need to be quiet more often. Um, and to stop talking so much because we really do stink at taming the tongue. Um, uh, his second sermon was about being careful what we say uh, when we do speak. We should be wise and not foolish when we speak. Uh, and, and, it's, and this is not about do's and don'ts or merely behavior modification. This is about what's in our hearts. And remember that the, the tongue exposes what is already in our hearts. In his third sermon, we heard about our sinful anger and that it's a, a slow boil. Uh, and we often don't even know it's building until it comes out in, a, in an eruption of anger. And this is not from God. Okay? This is sinful. This is from our sinful flesh. And yes, it hurts to have our sin pointed out. But it's necessary for you and me. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is so necessary for us, and we should see it really as a gracious gift uh, of divine discipline from our Heavenly Father. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives in Hebrews 12, 6. So, as we get back into this on the menu for today, we'll start off with some sarcasm, followed by flattery and lies and deceit, and for good measure, we'll throw in a side of boasting. How, how does that sound? Okay. It's not pleasant, but we should know what God has to say about it. And I think we will see clearly that all of these are sins and that we can quite easily find ourselves entrenched in them, and sometimes without realizing it. And mostly we don't realize it because it comes so naturally. And we'll see some subtle and not-so-subtle ways that we sin in these areas. I think we should see that these sins are all connected by what I think is one of, if not the most formidable sin. I want us to see that the deadly repercussions when we let our tongues loose. But I also want us to see there's hope. And this is not all doom and gloom. We all know sarcasm and flattery and lies and deceit and boasting are sinful, don't we? We do them anyway. Why should we hear what the Bible says again? Why should we subject ourselves to these words that we really don't want to hear? Because we want God to help us. No, we need God to help us. And why, why can I believe that the Word of God can change me? 
Why can I believe that it can help me change in my struggle with sin? This is where I want to look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. And we should remember this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for this morning. And thank you for your word that is so powerful that we are completely exposed by its truth. Our sin is exposed. Our lostness is exposed. Our need for a Savior is exposed. And thank you also, Lord, that your word provides the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that lost and wretched sinners like us, through repentance and faith in Christ, can be saved, have our sins forgiven, and have eternal life. Thank you, Father. We ask today, Lord, that as we study these topics of sins that we struggle with, Lord, that you would expose our hearts here, Help us, Lord, to consider our own lives, to examine our own hearts, not to think of others who we recognize as committing these sins. Help us, Lord, to look to our own hearts. And Lord, would you convict us of it? And we ask, Lord, that you would help us, sanctify us, make us holy, make us more like Christ as we serve each other, as we serve you in this world, as we are ministers of the gospel. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So Brandon has dabbled in several verses in Ephesians 4 in each of his first three messages. In fact, you may notice a lot of crossover in scripture references and repeats in this series, and it really can't be helped. Okay, Bible explains the Bible, and it seems impossible to not attach Paul's words here in his letter to the church at Ephesus to these topics that we've been going through. And so we'll be looking at Ephesians today, and if you want to turn to Ephesians 4, we'll spend a little more time there, but I just want to give a, a little bit of a recap of the, of the book of Ephesians real quickly. In chapter 1 here, we learn that this letter is written to believers, written by Paul to believers, uh, to Christians, all of which, he says, are chosen by God from before the foundation of the world for salvation, to be holy and blameless before God. And Paul says Christians are blessed. We are loved, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, given an inheritance. And this is all guaranteed. It is sealed by the promised Holy Spirit until we obtain possession of it. And then we see how thankful he is to God for the believers in Ephesus. It's all in chapter 1. And, of course, there's more. Chapter 2, here Paul lays out his explanation of how salvation comes about and by whom it is accomplished. We're saved not by our own efforts, but by the grace of God through faith in verses 8 and 9. And we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, brought into the household of God that is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And that structure is all centered around 
Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. In chapter 3, Paul reminds us that he was called by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, bringing them into the fellowship of the saints. And it's why he's in prison writing this letter. And, and that is, it's all part of God's plan and purpose for the building up of the church, which is supposed to be making the wisdom of God known to the world. He prays for strength for the people of God to be rooted and grounded in love and that Christians would be filled with all the fullness of God. And he ends chapter 3 by reminding Christians that they are called uh, to be and what they must endure being God's called out ones is done not in and of themselves, but through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And what we have to get through our heads is what Paul says in verse 20 that Christ, according to the power at work within us, and that is the Holy Spirit, is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Yes, we act in obedience, but the only way we can live the Christian life is by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit within us. In chapter 4, he moves into another reminder of where we came from, or what we were before the Lord changed us. He calls on Christians to walk in a manner worthy of, of the calling, which is to be humble and gentle and patient and bearing with one another in love, in verses 1 and 2. In fact, we are to be eager to behave in these ways toward one another, in verse 3. And Paul says, God has given the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, in verses 11 and 12. And that's what you're doing here in church today. You, came, you come and you sit under the preaching of the word of God to be equipped for ministry and to build up the body of Christ. Not to feel good about yourself or prop yourself up or to check off a box that you have for church attendance, but to be equipped to minister to your fellow Christians and to the unbelieving people that God has placed in your life. You see, you have something to do, a purpose for being here. And this is a process for sure as God sanctifies us. He's growing us to have more unity as we gain more maturity in our knowledge of Christ in verse 13. Why? So we're not thrown off course and tossed about by clinging to worldly thinking. The world system is deceitful and cunning and crafty, but our command is to remain committed to the truth of biblical doctrine, verse 14. God's word is a straight path with sure footing, and will never disappoint us as believers. And we are to, sp- to seek to be mature in our biblical thinking. So don't go back to living like you did before Christ saved you. You must not, verse 17. You must put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Verse 22. You must put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, verse 24. How do we do this? What does it mean to put on the new self? It's what this series is about. All we're learning about and being instructed in is how we put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. Putting away falsehood and speaking the truth is putting on the new self, verse 25. Not being sinfully angry is putting on the new self, verse 26. To stop stealing and to be working hard and sharing with others is putting on the new self, verse 28. 
getting rid of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. Verse 31, instead, being kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving as God has forgiven you in Christ is putting on the new self. Verse 32, there's a lot of self-control that needs to be applied in our lives and no more and none more than in what we're going to talk about now. I skipped verse 29, which informs us that putting on the new self also means we should let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And some translations have here foul language or unwholesome talk. And the word Paul used here means putrid, rotten, or corrupted. It's the same word Jesus used to describe the bad tree that can only produce bad fruit when he compared it to false prophets. The tree is incapable of producing good fruit because it is rotten or corrupted. So Paul is not just talking about swear words or cursing here. Okay, this has a broader meaning of any talk that is corrupting. It is corrupt and has the effect of being corrupting towards others. Harmful to other people, you see. So we go beyond mere cursing to our list of sarcasm, and flattery, lies, deceit, and boasting. Understand here, Christian, these are not to come out of your mouths. They are not to be part of our communications with other people or even thoughts in our minds for that matter. And before we get to sarcasm, I need to mention irony. Irony is a way of speaking about the meaning of something by doing so in opposite terms. Like when you walk around the back of your truck and forget that you left the toe hitch in it and you hit your shin on it. You might say something like, oh, that felt great. It didn't really feel great. That was verbal irony. Okay? Sarcasm is a way of using irony, but in a mocking sort of way. Okay? Like when your friend is driving very slowly and you say, could you go any faster? Okay? Uh, I, I'm actually mocking his sluggishness in driving by saying <clears throat> that it's fast when it's not. And of course, this statement, if I'm going to make a statement like that, it, it requires some curling of lips and raised eyebrows to really accentuate the the sarcasm. And sarcasm can be fun, it can be good-natured, even appropriate in certain situations, but it can also be sinful. Now, over the course of preparing this sermon, I've come to realize that I have several relationships that are almost completely built on a foundation of sarcasm. Uh, I even told Dave a couple weeks ago that I have to you know, watch my mouth. Our our relationship might have to come to an end because I'll have nothing to say. Because sarcasm is woven through almost every conversation we have, it seems. So I decided decided to start paying attention to my sarcasm as much as I could. And by the way, if you've noticed any sarcasm in my daughters, I admit it's my fault. Okay, that's that's where it came from. And I know I knew I was I was going to meet uh, some guys behind the church yesterday to load up some wood to take to one of our church members, uh, and this would be the perfect time to pay attention to how often I was tempted to use sarcasm. And you should know, I had to think really hard for quite a while just to come up with the couple of lame examples I gave you a minute ago. I, I don't know, it was really hard for me to come up with examples of sarcasm. 
But when Mike Ogg showed up, when we were doing wood, and he showed up a few minutes after me, which usually isn't the case, I instantly had sarcasm flowing through my veins. Okay? I, I had comments popping into my head left and right before he even got out of his truck. I mean, I could see him over there getting out of his truck, and I, I got a list of things going on here that I could say. I didn't plan them out ahead of time or see if they'd work. Uh, they just came to me in a flash. I, I didn't let them out, though. Okay? It seemed like every time I wanted to say something during the time that we were together loading wood, it was going to be sarcastic. Uh, even when paying attention on purpose, I couldn't catch all the comments before they came out of my mouth. And I continually let my guard down. I was trying on purpose to catch myself, and I couldn't catch everything. Uh, we've known each other for a long time, and, and it's part of our communications. Uh, it's always been that way, and there's this back and forth of sarcasm. Um, and maybe you have relationships like this. It's okay. But you do need to be careful. I asked Mike if he would tell me if I ever crossed the line in my sarcasm and, and sinned against him. He said he would tell me, but he reassured me that he, that wouldn't happen. He's, his skin is so thick. Right? <laughs> I have several good friends that I have this kind of relationship with for some reason. And maybe it's a guy thing. Um, I know we love each other as brothers, and it, and it never hurts when they dish it out to me. Uh, but I thought, perhaps I, should take it, I shouldn't take it for granted uh, that my sarcasm is always well-received. Uh, and there's the rub. Right? If you have relationships like that with people, maybe check in with them and make sure you've not or are not crossing the line into sinful sarcasm. Agree with one another that you'll point it out if there ever is a crossing the line, if there ever is sin, and we should do that for one another. We should point out our sin. So then what is sinful sarcasm if that's not it? What does it look like? Well, sinful sarcasm would be making those sarcastic comments with an agenda. An agenda to build yourself up and tear the other person down. There's a cutting, a biting nature to this kind of sarcasm. And it's most likely to happen in a group of people. So that others will hear your little jab and think you're clever and funny and subtly come to view the other person as an idiot, just as you want them to think. You see, because the other guy is supposedly an idiot, and I pointed it out in a funny way, they see me as I want them to. Again, this is a heart issue. The, the hurtful, agenda-driven sarcasm betrays uh, in you a heart of selfishness, insecurity, and the desire for the praise of men. This is really an uncaring hatred of the other person. It's not funny. So the question is, what is my intent? Right? You, you should be able to examine yourself and examine your motives or your desired outcome. It's also good for building up, as verse 29 says. That's the question we should ask. Is it good for building up this thing that I'm about to say? And also don't think that because your intent was not evil in a remark that the person could be hurt anyway, which for you would make it sin. Oh, but I didn't intend it. It doesn't matter what you intended. 
Now you must repent and seek forgiveness from that person. We should be careful. We should also ask ourselves if this sarcasm is giving grace to those who hear it. Sometimes even if you and your friend are sarcastic with each other and it's okay, you must think about others who don't know it's okay. And they're hearing it. They're left to think, man, you're a jerk. It takes vigilance and self-examination to be sure, but it's worth it so as not to sin against anyone. Something to be careful of. So there is an okay kind of sarcasm. I hope you will pay attention to what that is, and if that's truly what you have going on, you might need to check with some people in your life. And we have biblical examples. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 27. We have biblical examples of sinful sarcasm. I want to look at one briefly. Matthew 27, starting in verse 39. As Christ is hanging on the cross, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. Can he not save himself? He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him, in the same way. Jesus is mocked on the cross. There's a lot of sarcasm flowing around there. With Jesus on the cross, they had every evidence. He was not who he said he was. They thought, so they thought. Right? It, was, it was proof in their minds that this man was a fraud, and they felt confident in their mockery that not only would there be no consequences, but they would gain some notoriety for a bit of clever sarcasm. In Luke's account of these events, we hear Jesus asking God the Father to forgive these mockers because of what? They didn't know what they were doing. If it wasn't sinful, they wouldn't have needed forgiveness. And because they took this opportunity to mock Christ, it revealed they hated him from their hearts. They built themselves up while putting Christ down, not understanding their own condemnation. Now you might say, well, what about the sarcasm flowing from Elijah as he mocked the false prophets and their false god, Baal? Right? There, there's clearly some godly sarcasm, right? Well, I think the person thinking or saying that might want to check themselves. But let's look at it. Elijah was God's prophet to his people. He was calling out the people of Israel, the false prophets, the king, uh, king Ahab, for their idolatry in Baal worship. And he was making a strong point that there is only one God and he will not tolerate idolatry and the spiritual adultery of his people. In 1 Kings 18.21, it says, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord, Yahweh, is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So Elijah set up a little contest between 
the false god Baal and Yahweh, where the false prophets would offer a bull on their altar and Elijah would offer a bull on the altar of the Lord, and whichever God answered with fire when called upon was the true God. People thought this was a great idea. Elijah let the false prophets go first, and they began calling on their non-existent God from morning until noon with no answer. And here's what followed. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself. Or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. It's actually a bit funny. But at the same time, it was to prove a point, and the outcome for the prophets of Baal was deadly serious. It was not funny. And let's be reminded that when Elijah prayed and asked Yahweh to answer with fire, he said this, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Of course, God did answer and burned everything up with emphasis. Then Elijah took all the false prophets and slaughtered them. Here's a key element in justifying Elijah's sarcasm. He was God's servant, carrying out the very word of God against idolatry. Everything he did was sanctioned by God, and Elijah knew it. Can you say that? I don't think so. If you find yourself thinking you can sarcastically mock someone and have it be sanctioned by God, you might want to think again. Did God really send you to do that? Let's move on to flattery. Where sarcasm is not mentioned by name in the scriptures, flattery is, and it's no joke. There is no good form of flattery. It is, by definition, insincere praise, and therefore it is lying and deceitful. It is sinful. The Bible consistently connects flattery with lies and deceit. It has been said only two groups of people fall for flattery, men and women. It's also been said that a man's body is remarkably sensitive. Pat him on the back and his head swells. All right. What does the flatterer do? Why do they do it? One commentator said, The flatterer compliments you merely as a ploy to win your favor or to gain power over you. A flatterer is a man that tells you your opinion and not his own. And Psalm 12, 2 says, Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. A double heart means they have self-serving motives. They appear to be one type of person, but inside they're another. And I can't help but think of those people who go on American Idol who couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. They sing terribly, and the professional judges tell them, you can't sing. Yet they proceed to argue that they can. Why? Because they've been deceived by flattery from someone in their life. Someone who would, for some reason, lie to them about this and then let them go on national television and embarrass themselves in front of the whole world without warning them, without telling them the truth. This is hatred from the flatterer, truly. In Proverbs 26, 28, a lying tongue hates its victims 
and a flattering mouth works ruin. The deceived person has believed the lies. Why? Because they were told their own opinion. It's what they wanted to hear. What they needed was the truth. The truth would have protected them from danger. It would have protected them from themselves. I think of all these famous people in our culture who have entourages. These people falling all over them because they have money and fame, hoping they can get close enough. Maybe some of that wealth will trickle down. And these are flatterers who are deceiving these famous people into believing they're more important than others. They believe the lies and deception through flattery, and it's not without cost. The cost is high, and we often don't know what we're doing when we flatter. We think it's no big deal, but what does the Scripture tell us that we're doing when we flatter? The truth about this should cause us some distress. In 12 short words from the Proverbs, we should be deeply convicted about ever using flattery again. And listen to those 12 words from Proverbs 29.5. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. You get someone to believe something that isn't true about themselves, and you've set a trap for them. What's well, one thing if the trap is embarrassment on national television? But what about their eternity? What about their soul? The deception from flattery in our culture is great. We can see the results of this by looking at what the world believes about things the Bible speaks about. God accepts everyone because He is love. He gets you. This is flattery. It doesn't matter what you believe about God as long as you're sincere. It's flattery. Marriage is not important, and having sex outside of marriage is just natural. Abortion is just health care. Homosexuality is just fine. Gender is fluid. There are multiple genders. A person can change their gender. There's no gender. A man who says he's a woman is a woman, and vice versa. A man can have a baby. Lying is just fine. Deception is just fine. Hating others for any reason is just fine. What is happening here? The world has fallen for and been deceived by flattery. The flattery of others as well as self-flattery. They've rejected the word of God and the order established by God and, and decided that sin has no consequences. Everyone in the world system is telling themselves and each other exactly what they want to hear. If you believe you're a cat, it's true. And anyone who says it's not is committing an act of violence. I'm not joking. Doing whatever you want to do, whatever is right in your own eyes, has no consequences in the eyes of and the darkened minds of unbelievers. This is one of Satan's great lies, that the word of God is irrelevant and outdated, and those who hold to it are just old-fashioned haters and have not progressed with the rest of the world. And my friends, what we see in our culture is not progress. It's the same old fleshly desires that have always been around, but on steroids. This should not surprise us. The world is lost 
And until they repent of their sin and turn to Christ, they remain condemned by their sin. Romans 1 is being played out before our eyes. Supposedly the smartest people, the most knowledgeable people, the most scientific people in our world are shown by Scripture to be fools. Romans 1, verses 21 and 22, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 24. They exchanged the truth for a lie. Verse 25. So God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 26. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Verse 28. This is our nation. God has given them up to a debased mind. Now, Christian, if you agree with the world system, if you agree that any of these and many other evils done in the world are good and and you're telling people or agreeing with people that they're just fine, you've set a trap for them. You're flattering them. You spread the net for their feet and flattered them that God is okay with sin and they can hang on to that sin and be a Christian. You're leaving them condemned. You're hating them. You've left them in their hatred for God and convinced them they love God. God is not silent on the subject of those who affirm people in their sin. Romans 1.32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Ephesians 5, 6, and 7, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, therefore do not become partners with them. Those believing these lies have been deceived with empty words. And we cannot, we must not become partners with them. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness before light. This is an expression of divine judgment on those who declare evil to be good and what is good to be evil. We must not agree with them. Why would Christians flatter those around them anyway who are in unrepentant sin? instead of warning them to turn from it. Why would we do that? Because we need to be liked. We don't want to be seen as judgmental. We don't want to be sounding harsh. Maybe we're in the same sins. Bottom line, we fear man and not God. If we truly feared God, we would never participate in the evil works of darkness. Flattery like this sends people to hell But hey, at least they liked me. Instead, we should have offered them freedom through the truth. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Might some hate us? Yes. Might many or even most reject what we say? Yes. But might the Lord set some free to eternal life when we tell them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes. 
They're in bondage to their sin. Instead of approving of it and deceiving them with flattery, we are to love them enough to tell them the truth in love. Look with me at Romans 16. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 19. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil." If we're to avoid the flatterers, by implication, we should not be one of them. Be innocent when it comes to this evil and let it not come from your mouth. Flattery is evil. And the last thing we're going to look at today is another form of corrupting talk that comes from our mouths. But we should also be reminded that like the others, it actually flows from our hearts. It has roots, its roots in, in a faulty perception of self and of God. Boasting is the sin I'm referring to. And friends, this is a, a vile and terrible sin, as if there's not a terrible sin. And when Brandon talked about anger, he said there, there's a righteous anger, but he didn't want to spend a bunch of time on that because we have enough on our hands just trying to stop being sinfully angry. I agree. The subject of boasting also has a righteous component, though. And for the purpose of leaving you with hope today, I will talk about both types. I'm going to talk about the sin of boasting, but I'm also going to talk about what righteous boasting looks like and what our only boast should be, so to speak. I cannot but help but think that opening our mouths in boastful speech, which reveals our boastful thoughts, also reveals the biggest problem we have, and, and nobody escapes this. None of us can get off the hook. What does boasting reveal? The pride of the heart of man. Boasting is the outward expression of the inward idolatry. What idolatry? Well, the idolatry of self, self-importance, self-preservation, self-adulation. This is all pride. In pride, we put down. In pride, we build up self by putting down others. In pride, we want others to see or hear us put others down, thinking this elevates us in, our eye, in, in their eyes. But it really brings us down in their eyes. But they pretend to go along. Why? Their own self-preservation and pride. They flatter us in our pride so they won't be the next target. In time, we'll begin to believe our own pride, and then out comes the boasting. Boasting is like breathing for a human being. We often don't even know we're doing it. Pride and boasting are where sarcasm, flattery, lies, and deceit come from. The root problem is pride. It's as old as time. It has been here since Satan and his angels fell. Since Adam and Eve fell, plunging the whole world in, 
and the whole human race into sin. And of course, I must quote Charles Spurgeon on the subject from a sermon he preached in London in 1883. He says, None have more pride than those who dream that they have none. You may labor against vainglory till you conceive that you are humble, and the fond conceit of your humility will prove to be pride in full bloom. It apes humility well, but conceit of your humility will prove to be pride. Oops, I skipped a line there. Uh, It's then most truly pride. Pride is a sin with a thousand lives. It seems impossible to kill it. It flourishes on that which should be its poison, glorying in its shame. It is a sin with a thousand shapes. By perpetual change, it escapes capture. It seems impossible to hold it. The vapory imp slips from you, only to appear in another form and mock your fruitless pursuit. To die to pride and self, one would need to die himself. He also said, that demon of pride was born with us and it will not die one hour before us. The Bible has plenty to say about pride and boasting, so let's look at what it says and notice that God is very clear on the subject, not leaving room for this to be anything but sin. James 4, 16, as it it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We cannot escape the biblical truth that all boasting in ourselves is arrogant and evil. If we tried, we could never discover all the ways we sinfully boast. So let's just look at some that might come from the mouths of Christians. Now we try to hide the fact that it's boasting, and we even say things like, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but... If somebody says that, they're probably about to brag. We desperately want other Christians to see us as good Christians. We don't want people to know that we're sinners. Newsflash, they know. Nevertheless, we do it anyway. We go out of our way to drop little nuggets of information. Hey, while I was doing my three hours of personal Bible study and prayer today, I remembered we are supposed to go to that meeting tonight. What does one have to do with the other? Well, for one thing, it's an extreme exaggeration, most likely not true at all. Why couldn't I just say, hey, I just remembered we're supposed to go to that meeting tonight? Because I wanted to boast about my Christian walk, even if it's fake. I put a plug in for myself. I want others to see. I want others to know how religious I am. But Jesus condemned this practice very strongly. When addressing the sinful practice of the Pharisees, he said, And when you pray, you must not... Be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What is their reward? It's not eternity. It's the praise of man. And Later in Matthew, Jesus said, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Why do we do that? Because I love me some me. Right? We're so internally focused. We don't even know all the ways we boast. The big problem with our Christianity, the thing that hinders us from walking in a manner worthy of our calling, is our obsession with ourselves in one form or the other. 
We should have noticed by now all the things that we've been touching on in this series, all the things we're supposed to be putting off are how we relate to other people. God must instruct us in this way and give us his commands about how to treat others because we stink at it. Why can't we grasp that the Christian life is about dying to self and living to Christ? Die to self to love your spouse better. Die to self to love your kids better. Die to self to love your parents better. Die to self to love your coworkers better. Die to self to love your siblings better. Die to self to love Christ as you should. Our lack of willingness to do this is ultimately what hinders every relationship we have. If we always put others before ourselves, just think of how our families could change. Think of how the church could change. How the world would truly see Christ in his people. But this is not where we excel. We excel in boasting. And it's really ugly. Spurgeon said, a man never lowers himself more than when he tries to lift himself up. I did this. I did that. I achieved this. I worked hard for that. I deserve that raise because look at what I did. Look how much I know about the Bible. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. We even try to convince God that we're worthy of praise. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If that doesn't put you in your place, I don't know what will. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. The clear point of this passage is that God has given you everything. Maybe even now you're trying to think of something you have or something you can do that you can give yourself credit for. The Bible is clear. There is nothing you have, can do, can be, can accomplish, have done, that was not given by God or empowered by God. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The problem is we don't believe it because we're so prideful. What is really going on here is that we want what only belongs to God, the glory. Understand this, when you get the glory, Christ does not. You are stealing glory from God himself instead of praising him for everything. You're stealing it in your own eyes and stealing it in other people's eyes. God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his own glory. When you boast in yourself, you're guilty, not only of the sin of boasting, but of idolatry because you've attempted to be your own God. But all glory belongs only to the one true God. And through the prophet Isaiah, he said, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. You will not tolerate this. We should be building up God, not, not because he's not already higher than anyone or anything else, but because we need to know it. God is who he is, and our lack of belief or understanding of him as holy does not make him less holy. It just makes us ignorant. 
And when I say we need to build God up, I mean in our own minds, in the minds of others, not in an imaginary sense, but that our minds would agree with God that he alone is worthy of praise and honor and glory and power. Our problem is we see ourselves as better than we are, and God is not as good as he is. But what are we really? What have we to boast about? Nothing. Sorry, one last thing from Spurgeon. When a man admires himself, he never adores God. It's true. My friend, there's nothing to admire in us. I know it's hard to believe because all your life you've been flattered that your self-esteem is primary and you need to cultivate your self-worth and all, all that. But when the Bible consistently says the opposite, perhaps we're wrong. We see it over and over again in the Bible. God doing things intentionally so that we cannot boast. Because we will. He knows that. God sent the Israelites into battle with far too few soldiers because he didn't even want them to have the chance to boast about victory. It was impossible without God. He made sure we see that salvation is completely of him so we would not boast in that either. Because we would. We have nothing to boast about is the consistent message of Scripture. But is there nothing to boast about? We learn from Scripture that no one is good, no one seeks for God, we're all worthless and wretched and vile, yet we boast all the more, disbelieving God's word and his command not to boast. All our boasting is evil, but there is one way we can boast and not be sinning. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts in this, boast, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Scripture is clear. Put off the corrupted boasting that comes out of your mouths and place it where it belongs, in the garbage. Put on the righteous boasting in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not meant to receive glory. We're not meant to be praised. It doesn't fit us, and it never will. We crave it, but we don't merit it. We desire it, but we can't handle it. We try to garner it, but all we get is the flattery of other boasters. Stop it. Turn your boasting and your praise to Jesus Christ. That is the only place it will ever fit. Psalm 44, 8. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. We think God finds favor with us because of what we do. Even if you don't verbalize that, it's boasting in the heart. Whatever you have, whatever is happening, if you are saved, it's because God chose. God acted. It was God, and God wants you to get that. Let it sink in. Stop disbelieving. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. Start at verse 26 through 31. 
For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. It's clear. Do you want something to boast in, Christian? Boast in the one who saved a wretched sinner like you and like me. Boast in the one who laid down his life for you to give you eternal life. Boast in the one who lived a righteous life for you so God the Father could declare you justified in his sight. Find peace and assurance in knowing when you're weak, he is strong. Praise the one who rose from the dead and lives to make intercession for you. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ for enduring the cross in your place and who's coming back to bring you home someday. Praise the one who gives you every breath and sustains your life. Praise the one who has every hair on your head numbered. Praise the one who has declared the end from the beginning and everything in between. The Lord Jesus Christ is worthy. That is righteous boasting. One of my favorite songs is All I Have is Christ by Jordan Coughlin. And the third verse of that song goes like this. I'm not going to sing it. Okay, you don't have to worry. <laughs> is that sarcasm? That felt like sarcasm. <laughs> now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. O Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. O Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. And let my soul forever be. My only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Ask the Lord to expose your boasting heart. Ask him to lay it bare and convict you of how sinful it is and how it attempts to steal his glory. Confess it. Repent of it. Let everything you ever think to offer praise or boasting for only be that Jesus Christ deserves it all. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for my hands to work. Thank you for my new job. Thank you for my family. Thank you for teaching me your word. Thank you for the food you give. Thank you for the money to live. Thank you for letting me serve you, for the ability to do this or that. Thank you for my life. Thank you for salvation. This is how we praise him and boast about him in our own eyes and before the watching world. They'll ask, why do you thank God for all that stuff 
that you did. And you can answer them. My only boast is him. Maybe you're sitting here without Christ in your life. You have until now spent your life for yourself and trusting in yourself. You've thought you could offer God something that would please him to cause him to want to save you. I would call on you today to dump that way of thinking. The only way to have your sins forgiven and peace with God and eternal life is through repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross where he took your place. Humble yourself before God today. Dump your self-righteousness and receive the righteousness of Christ unto salvation. For the Bible tells us, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can do that right where you're at. You cry out to the Lord. You call on him for salvation. You repent of your sin. You trust Christ alone and his work on the cross. The word of God tells you, you will be saved. Let's pray this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, again for your word and its ability to cut to the heart. I pray, Father, that we have been here this morning being convicted by your word of our sinful sarcasm, our sinful flattery and lies and deceit and boasting. And Lord, I thank you. As hard as that is to be convicted by our sin, to to be exposed in that way, I thank you, Lord, that you offer forgiveness of sins. I thank you, most of all, that we can boast. There is something to boast about, someone to boast about. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for salvation that is found in him alone. And if there's anyone here today, Lord, who has not come to that place, Lord, open their hearts to receive the truth of your word. They need the forgiveness of the Savior, and they need to repent of their sin. Help us, Lord, not to flatter people and leaving them in their sin. Help us to share the truth with them, loving them. We ask, Lord, that as we share the gospel with others, you would use your powerful gospel to bring salvation. Thank you, Father, that we can leave here, even though these are hard things, we can leave here with joy and hope, knowing that we can boast in our rock, in our Redeemer, in our strong fortress, our Deliverer, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.